Hey, it's your host, Charlotte Chipperfield, and welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast, the show that inspires you to think holistically about yourself, your business, and your marketing to ignite the impact you desire to have in the world. We'll learn what it takes to be seen and heard in the digital space from leading experts and myself as the founder and CEO of Chipperfield Media. Get ready to own your marketing by exploring the intersection of purpose and proactive marketing to move your business forward. Well, welcome Hannah Michelotti to the Holistic Marketing Podcast. I am really excited to have you here today. You are a public speaking aficionado (laughs) and so much more, which we will dive into. And I really wanted to bring you onto the podcast because you know, I'm not only had the opportunity to work with you to improve my own public speaking, but I also wanted to, you know, it's something that I encourage my clients to do is to put ourselves out there, be the face of our brands, if it be public speaking or doing a social media, Instagram story. And I think that same kind of fear often comes up of putting ourselves out there, you know, if we're presenting our businesses or if we're on a stage in front of hundreds or thousands. So I'm really excited to have you here. Um, And before we dive into all the juicy topics around public speaking and the tips you might have for people today, I'd love for you to tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your company, and what your mission is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, public speaking aficionado. I'll add that to my repertoire. So (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) You you nailed my last name. My, my name is Hannah Michelotti, and my mission is to help people like you and the clients that I work with not only feel comfortable speaking to others in any kind of capacity, but helping people get very clear on their message. And I specifically work with what I call authentic professionals. So those are people who really want to speak in a way that works for them. And they're typically leaders, whether or not they know it. So they could be the unsung leader or they could be told they're a leader or maybe they circle the bubble on a, you know, multiple guest sheet that's like, yeah, I'm a leader, but I'm not going to tell anyone. And they know they have valuable messages to offer and communicate, but they really struggle to articulate their messages and tailor them for their audiences. So the people I work with, um, really struggle to be clear and concise and say what they actually mean to say. They struggle to motivate their audiences with their message. And they struggle to articulate their message in a way that also moves their audience into action. So if people want to be engaging or authentic or sell or pitch or teach or entertain or persuade, becoming a confident speaker and communicator is definitely what's going to get you there. Outside of public speaking, I am an avid runner. I'm an avid explorer. I love to climb mountains and I love to go on hikes that are kind of a slog. So a 15 mile hike with 10,000 feet of elevation sounds like the best weekend activity for me all in one day. And I'm a huge reader. So that's me. <laughs> that's amazing. That sounds like the worst weekend possible for me. <laughs> but I applaud you for doing that. But I do love reading as well. So that's, uh, that's great. I um, feel like you just said so much that I want to dive into. Um, I love that you are helping people create a very clear message. This is also something that I do with clients. And I think there's so much power in understanding what you're trying to convey to your audience. And I think so many times it's easy to get up there and be like, I'm just going to wing it. I talk about this all the time. But when you are really trying to move your audience into action or persuade them to make a decision, I mean, there's such an art and a craft to that. 
Um, and so I'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe how you encourage clients to think about and approach telling their stories that way. Yes, I actually been really on the persuasion train lately because often when I mention persuasion, people either say, oh, I don't do that. Or they, what they really mean is, I don't like that, or that means I have to be salesy, or that feels gross to me, or I just plain old don't want to do it. So I break it down for people and how they persuade in their everyday lives. Whether or not you have children, whether or not you have a spouse, I am positive at some point in your life, you convinced someone to take the garbage out because you didn't want to take it out. It could have been in your tone of voice. It could have been in what you said. You could have said, it's your turn to take the garbage out. That at its core is persuasion. You're persuading someone else to do something based on your tone of voice, based on your messaging, based on your nonverbal communication. So when you break down persuasion and make it less scary and explain to people how it happens in their everyday world, it's so much easier to take a bite out of. After we get people, after we, after I get people to recognize what persuasion actually is, then we can build on that. And I explain it to people like this. Persuasion is a spectrum. So a lot of people think that persuasion means making someone who's a Democrat suddenly a Republican or making a Republican suddenly a Democrat. And that is not persuasion. Persuasion is a spectrum. You have people who will listen to your message, who fully agree on one side. And all the way over on the other side, they fully disagree. But you have all that gray area in the middle. And when you persuade, you're trying to get someone to move by tick marks closer to the middle or closer to the opposite side. You're not trying to swing vote them completely, but you're trying to get them to move on that spectrum. And when you look at that also, it's very bite-sized as well. So you're not trying to completely convince a whole audience. You're just trying to get them to move on the spectrum. And when we persuade, we're trying to do one of three things. We're trying to change people's actions, change people's beliefs, and change people's values or thoughts. So when you really hone in on that, you're able to get more clear on your message. And on top of all of that, I work with people specifically on their skills and strengths. Some people aren't built out to be the schmarmy car salesman. In fact, a lot of people aren't. And a lot of people don't want to be that. You don't have to. So I teach people how to use the skills and strengths that they have and turn that into persuasion because everyone can be persuasive and compelling. It's just a matter of looking, it's a matter of looking at your specific skills and strengths and pairing them with persuasion. I love that visual that you just put forth about persuasion being a spectrum, because I do think persuasion sometimes feels like you're being really manipulative or you're trying to get someone to do something they don't want to do. And I love the concept of kind of breaking that down and just, it's a little shift. It doesn't have to be something that's, yeah, a completely swing vote in the opposite direction, but it's just, it's almost like expanding the other person's uh, visual or perspective on a topic. And it's not necessarily trying to make them, you know, completely overhaul their lives in a way that isn't aligned with them. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can think of a time when I was listening to a speech, it was in a college class and the speaker was a lot younger than I was. I was one of the oldest students in the class and he was talking about driving the speed limit and why we should lower speed limits. I am someone that admittedly likes to drive the speed limit and four miles over if I can get away with it. <laughs> right, I'm right. not a speedy driver, but I also don't 
I live in Portland, Oregon, and our speed limits are ridiculously low. It's like 50 or 55 on the highway. So I went into this, you know, kind of disagreeing. But his stats and information in that speech and the way he presented them have stuck with me for years. Anytime I'm driving on the highway in another state, because you can't go that fast in Oregon, and I get to 70 miles an hour, I remember what he said. When you get to 70 miles an hour driving a car, if you have an impact or an accident, it is doubly worse than if you were driving at 60 miles an hour. So just dropping down 10 miles an hour is going to save you in an accident or a potential crash. So much pain, heartache, whatever it might be. And he, com he completely persuaded me to change my driving habits. I drive the speed limit. I don't, go, I don't push it anymore at that four miles, four miles an hour over. But it was a small shift. And it was the way he presented the information that persuaded me. Yeah, that's so interesting. I should probably stop my speeding habits. <laughs> it can be so fun. And like you said, I think there's so many different places that have uh, faster speed limits and they are pretty low here. I would love to kind of break that down a little bit more. I know you were telling a story, but at the same time, I know I've heard you talk before about facts versus stories and kind of how that can be presented to persuade and then you kind of incorporate stories with the nonverbal and the tone. I'd just be curious to know a little bit more about how that all comes together to present in a persuasive way. Yes, persuasion happens in a triangle. A lot of people think that communication and public speaking is a soft skill, meaning it has no facts, it has no science behind it, which simply is not true. And persuasion actually has a formula, which you hit the nail on the head. We don't persuade with facts and statistics, actually. We persuade when we have a trifecta of three things. So our triangle consists of our credibility, which back in the olden times, Aristotle called that your ethos. So that's your years of experience, maybe your degrees, letters after your name, and uh, published works, if you're an author, things like that. That's your credibility. Number two, you have logic. So logic is things like facts, statistics, graphs, charts. It's a lot of numbers-based information. And the third piece of the triangle is called pathos. And pathos is what's called the human connection or emotion. And that's where we really appeal to the emotional side of people. And that's where stories come into play. And Aristotle hypothesized that without pathos, without human connection and emotion, we can't actually persuade. And he, he hypothesized that thousands of years ago, and it's been tested and it's been proven true. That's why when people give big presentations just chock full of statistics, first of all, you get a statistic overload and we can't remember all of them or which ones are the most important. And B, they're not persuasive. You are persuasive when you use all three components of that triangle. You have your credibility, you have your logic, and you have your human connection. And the human connection piece should weigh out over the credibility and the logic pieces. Yes, that's wonderful. I feel like I'm over here like clapping. <laughs> that's something I talk a lot about when creating, you know, clients' brand stories or working with them on how they're going to tell their messaging. And I always talk about marketing equaling relationships. I mean, that's what it is at the end of the day is really trying to drive that community connection. And again, in marketing, you might be persuading someone to make a purchase or to sign up for the email newsletter. 
Uh, so I guess marketing in itself is a little bit of, of persuasion as well. And, and thinking about it in that triangle form, I think is also a helpful way to, to understand how things like credibility and what you've done before, your track record comes into play with both relationships, but then also the facts behind why you might purchase a specific product over another one based on maybe warranties or what features the product comes with. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we're typically swayed by a story. Like if you think about a product you've purchased and a friend recommended it to you, that's an emotional appeal. Sure. You might go do your research and see if it's a good fit for you and it has good reviews online, but because your friend recommended it or your family member, you are far more inclined to purchase it because you have that emotional connection to the product already. That is amazing. And I want to talk a little bit about I think there's a lot of listeners and myself and you as well, like we're all solopreneurs and we're entrepreneurs that have products and services that we are trying to communicate and build those human connections with. But I know that having experienced this myself is that, you know, there's this huge fear of putting ourselves out there or being the face of our brands, the face of our companies. And I'd love to hear maybe kind of how you address working with clients to overcome this fear and how do we kind of work with that fear or use it maybe to our benefit to create that Instagram story we're afraid to do or to create the YouTube video or to get up on stage and speak in front of crowds of people? It is so scary. I'll be the first to say it. Yes, it is uncomfortable. Public speaking is a huge fear for so many people. It's one Isn't of the biggest. The number big- one fear in the U.S.? Is that yeah, right? I think it was a... I want to say it was a Washington Post article that I read. I think it was from 2015, but it was like 37% of Americans surveyed um, said that public speaking was their number one fear. And it's, I, I think it's far larger than that, but people would rather die and be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. I will not take credit for that. That was Jerry Seinfeld, but they would rather <laughs> that. Yes, I can probably relate to that. I mean, growing up, I was the kid in class that refused to raise my hand. Like I never, (laughs) never raised my hand in class, was absolutely terrified standing in front of class if I had to do a presentation. Like I could literally feel my knees shaking and knocking and just felt like I was going to pass out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, And so I've gotten better, obviously, over the years, but I, I know personally that fear is still there no matter what I have to do like that fear comes up and the fear doesn't go away just because you teach people about public speaking i still am afraid i still have fears it's a matter of understanding it and managing it so to answer your question public speaking and the fear of public speaking are not actually things that go together you're not actually afraid of public speaking you have underlying fears that come out as the fear of public speaking. And there can be multiples that are wrapped into it. So you have to break down what the fear actually is and ask yourselves, you know, you know, like ultimately, what am I afraid of if I get up and I speak publicly, if I'm the face of my brand, if I talk on that Instagram story? And common examples of fears that people have shared with me over the years that they actually have are making a mistake. So if you make a mistake in front of people, people won't like you, and then you will be doomed. Being wrong, you know, you get on on the camera in front of your team and you're afraid you'll share something wrong or incorrect or bad or poor information. 
You're afraid of disappointing people. You could be afraid of uh, not being appreciated, failing to achieve your goals. You could be afraid of being rejected by peers, by colleagues, by leaders. You're afraid of being seen as weak or uncertain or incompetent. There are a lot of fears. I could, I could go on and on, but no, those are all resonating. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the big ones. Yeah. Or uh, another one is being vulnerable and powerless. And what's actually happening in your brain when you're having this fear is your fight or flight response is kicking in. And our fight or flight is linked to the amygdala in the brain. And the amygdala is one of the older systems and it's linked to the limbic system. And that's why you start to shake because the amygdala is, is freaking out. And it's like, should I, should I fight or should I flee or should I freeze in place? Because there's all this fear that's coming into your body and you're kind of adrenalized. So it's this primordial part of your brain that's freaking out a little bit and you have to calm it down. And that's, I I give people a kind of a three-step process. So first of all, you have to identify what that fear is. So whenever I work with people, we really dig into what are you actually afraid of? Are you afraid of mumbling, not getting your words out, being laughed at? Is there something that happened in the past that didn't go well and that you don't want to have repeated? So first we identify what the fear actually is that we're calling the fear of public speaking. And step two is then you do an inventory of how you approach that fear in other parts of your life. Because digging into how you handle your underlying fear in other parts of your life Doesn't feel like it's connected to public speaking, but it is if you'd like to move past it or you'd like to be able to handle it in a better way. So for example, I tell people I'm extremely afraid of bears and I think that's a very valid fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are plenty of people (laughs) who aren't, but I'm afraid of bears. So what I do when I go to an area on a hike where there could be bears, I, I do research. I do research like crazy. I go to REI or now REI.com and purchase bear mace. I have bear bells. I research the different kinds of bears in the area, what they could look like. Are they juveniles? What part of the season are they in? Make sure I don't pack really smelly foods because bears have a great sense of smell. But I do research. I go into a research mode and that's how I work with that fear. So take a look at how you work with that fear in your life otherwise and apply that to public speaking. And that's step three is then you have to actually take action. So when I work with people, one thing I say is you have to actually be willing to want to do the work. You have to, you have to say, yeah, I, you know, I want to improve this and I want to change that. And you have to actually put it into action. So figuring out what the fear is and then seeing how it shows up in other parts of your life is fine and well, but if you don't actually activate that and put actionable steps to it, you're not going to make the changes that you'd like to see. Oh, I think those are amazing tips. And I love that correlation to anything else you do in your life. And I think as entrepreneurs, I mean, there's so many times that we are putting ourselves out there. If it's even just writing a blog post, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, am, is what I'm saying making sense? Are people going to understand this? And I think a lot of those same fears can come up in that way of preventing ourselves as well. I think it's so interesting that you do have a fear of bears with the hiking, but I love that you're able to kind of use that fear to kind of mitigate and educate yourself on what, what you're getting into. It, it, it it is the most paralyzing thing. I've also been faced with a bear and it's cub face to face. And 
I know that I freeze. So instead of freezing, that doesn't help anyone. I know what I need to do. And it, it shows up when I work with clients. You know, I work with a multitude of different people. I work with physical therapists. I've worked with lawyers. I've worked with mortgage officers. I've worked with people in wealth and finance. And I have to do research on where they're coming from. I have to do research on their company, on their clients, what they like to achieve. So the way that I handle working with them is I do a ton of research because I want to make sure that I'm serving them in the best way possible and that we're on the same page. It's, it's definitely linked to a fear that I, I won't be able to serve my clients to the extent that I want. So I work with that and I, I do a lot of research. I do, I do more than they know, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's wonderful. And I think sometimes when we're able to really focus on the desired outcome, if it be running away from a bear, or maybe you're not supposed to run, but getting away from a bear and making sure that you're still alive and safe, or if it is giving that presentation and getting that standing ovation at the end or getting new clients as a result, I think that can be something that's helpful. And I know that's been helpful for me too, is that sometimes the fear is just bigger than what's actually happening. And so being able to kind of root into the experience and kind of breathe through that fear and just kind of lean into your area of expertise and focus on the outcome you want is something that I think is a great way that's helped me even manage that fear. Yeah, that's a great point. You, you have to put it in perspective. You know, is your fear of public speaking holding you back from the potential of sharing your message with hundreds of thousands of people that could benefit from working with you? That's the case. Hey, Let's work on that fear because there's so many people that need to hear what you have to say and need your help. And if you don't share it and if you don't talk about it, you could have the greatest, most wonderful program or service in the world, but no one knows about it because you're afraid of getting over that hurdle of public speaking. And we can definitely work on that. Right. Yeah. I think it's just thinking bigger than yourself and showing up in that place of service to others can really help you get out of your head a little bit and know that you're there to help the people in the room um, or virtual rooms, I guess, these days as we are all living the new normal. Uh, I guess yeah. being that we are living in the virtual world, I'd love to hear kind of how maybe you're helping clients transition to that. I think a lot of people, obviously, there's not big stages of public speaking happening right now. And so people are leading webinars or team meetings or virtual gatherings. And I'm curious if, you see a lot of those same fears come up with presenting virtually, or do we feel a little bit safer because we're at home and maybe even share, you could share some tips on kind of how do we translate preparing to speak on stage or speak in front of a group of people live because we're lacking some of those nonverbal cues. Um, how do we translate that into the kind of virtual world we're all living in right now? First, I wanted to go back and highlight what you talked about, how if you approach talking in public from a place of service, it will calm down your nervous system because we cannot feel this, those two things at the same time. We can't be helping people and full of this gratitude feeling and fear at the same time. Mm. Yeah. So if you really can shift your brain into thinking, I am here to help 
people. I am here to provide them with knowledge that will help them. It will really calm you down. And it does take a while to get there because then the other part of your brain is like, oh, I just want to run away. I get that. (laughs) But you really have to calm it down and say like, I am giving people something that they need. And so that's a big tip that I share. But to talk to the virtual world, it's kind of a mixed bag for people right now about how they're feeling about presenting virtually. But the tips that I provide, I I thought of four big tips that I give people. So number one is to know your audience. Without nonverbal cues, which our brains are consistently searching for on a virtual call, and that's what tires us out on a virtual call is we're just trying to pick up on any expressions that we can. Without those nonverbal cues, we have to be really cognizant of our audience and what they want to hear. What do they want to know and what is valuable to them? This is kind of where that meme came up where like all those meetings we had in person that could have been emails, kind of the same concept here. Know what your audience wants, know what they value and know what's of interest to them. The second thing I tell people is to know your goal. Do you want your team to take action on the items you've presented? Do you want a customer to sign a contract with you? Are you there to provide updates and just deliver announcements? Are you seeking feedback? What is the ultimate goal of your meeting, of your presentation, or of your speech? Know your goal. If you don't know your goal, that's where we get into the waters of lack of clarity, which is one thing I I was going to talk about a little bit later, but you definitely want to be clear. And if you know your goal, you can be clear. Um, The third thing I recommend is to inventory your skills. How are you most effective and productive and engaging? And what I mean by that is, for example, if you know that you're going to speak on a webinar, do you do best with a clean desk, no distractions, no noises, no dog, no cat, nothing? Or are you kind of like me and you can speak and present from probably the world's messiest desk in the world? I have workbooks all over it. I have, I don't know why, sunscreen. I have an old keychain with a leather elephant on it. I mean, I (laughs) I could go on and on. But know where you are going to be most effective and productive. And I know that's silly, but if it means that you need to go into a closet so it's dark and no one can find you, and it's quiet, do that. Because that means that you are using your skills and strengths to their highest potential. When we use our skills and our strengths and we're interested, we light up. We show up in the best, most engaging way possible. And that's what I want for you when you're speaking. So tip number four, and this one's a little bit more tactical, is please, 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 on virtual presentations, look into the void. Look into the camera. I know this seems kind of silly to mention, but I do a fair amount of virtual calls. And yes, while you might look at your screen and be able to see everybody on your screen and see yourself, because the ego has a big part of this, that's fine and well. But when you're talking to people, they don't feel like you're looking at them because you're not. So look straight into the camera so the other people receiving the information feel like you're looking directly at them. I know it sounds rudimentary, but it makes all the difference in the world because it supplements eye contact. And eye contact is the number one way to communicate non-verbally. And if we don't have that because we're not in person, we can try and have that with looking into the camera. Yeah, I think that's been one of the hardest adjustments for me is 
is I'm wanting to look at the screen to get the eye contact from other people to see how the message is like landing with them to get almost some of those nonverbal cues that you're used to. If you're presenting live where people are nodding their heads or they are making eye contact with you. And so it feels so weird to look into the camera and then not being able to see what else is happening. But I also really, on the other side of that, really respect when someone is looking at the camera because then I do feel connected to them. And so it's such an interesting, uh, I guess, world that we're living in and where everything is virtual. And I think sometimes the Zoom fatigue, I know you were talking about that <laughs> earlier, is that we're constantly scanning for those those uh, nonverbal cues. And so it can be really challenging and we can burn out quickly. I love that Zoom now has that feature where you can hide your own view of yourself so that you're not kind of concerned about what you look like. But I do find it challenging to not have that direct eye contact through the computer through Zoom. It, it really is challenging. We miss so much by not being in person and we don't even realize it. There are these things called micro expressions and a micro expression is when someone's pupils dilate or you see someone furrow their brow just for a moment it is less than a second long or they scrunch up their nose or you notice their mouth quirk and those help us tailor our mesh our message and our brains we're like oh what does that mean and we interpret those micro expressions and you have none of those over zoom and virtual calls Mm, that's so interesting. And I almost wonder if some of those micro, what did you call them? Micro? Micro expressions. Micro expressions. I almost wonder if some of those build the fear when we're live. Because if you see someone kind of like wrinkle their nose or have this inquisitive look on your face, sometimes I wonder if it makes you go, huh, they don't get the message or that didn't make <laughs> sense to them. Am I doing something wrong? Like it almost kind of feeds into those fears a little bit. Yes, it definitely can. So one thing that I do is I spend a fair amount of time with people working on nonverbal communication and deciphering cues. It's not a perfect science, but there are certain cues and expressions and body language gestures that we can interpret and understand what those mean. I remember giving a presentation and there was a person in the back of the room that was just kind of staring me down. I did not think that they liked what I had to say. They weren't taking notes. They weren't asking questions. But I know that that person might have a different learning style. So for them, they're just interpreting the information. And as it turned out, that one person at the end of my presentation raised their hand and said, when can I book you to work with you? And I was like, wow, not the person I would have expected. But right. because I'm because I was aware that different people learn differently and I knew how to interpret those signals. I knew that he was not upset or mad or disregarding what I had to say. He was just taking it in in a different way than the other people around him. Mm, yeah. I think that's such a good reminder that we all do have different learning, uh, learning manners and, and different ways of expressing ourselves. So I think that's so interesting to be able to interpret that like in the moment and not like dissuade it from conveying your message. That, yeah, like I said, there's, there are some universal signals that you can typically 
ascribe to people and, and what those mean, but it's also just a matter of getting familiar with it, you know, getting used to being on camera, getting used to seeing people's faces and getting a sense of whether or not your message is landing. It really goes back to knowing your audience. If you know your audience and you know what they want and you can speak to that in an effective way, you don't have to be worried about the micro expressions or the nonverbal communication because you know you're giving them something helpful that they find valuable and that they want. Yes, that's wonderful. I talk a lot about that too, about understanding your audience. And I'd be curious to know, do you have like a number one tip for how to know your audience before you're in the room or on Zoom in front of them? Is there any specific questions people should ask to learn a couple key insights about the audience? That was what I was going to say. Yes, if you can if you can ask people questions ahead of time to find out what you, what, what's important to them, absolutely do it. And even if it's over email, you know, just sending out an email with three to five questions that's going to get the information that you want, that's extremely helpful. I always have a discovery call with people where we really dig into what's valuable for them and what's in, of interest and what they need and using words like that, what is valuable? What is interesting? What do you need? I know there's a chiropractor out. Uh, um, she's actually in Australia, but she's in a program that I was part of. And one question that she asks all of her clients is in the discovery call, are you the kind of person that is going to get my recommendations and stretches and use them and do them every day? Or are you the kind of person that's going to sit here, take my recommendations, tell me you'll do them, and then you won't actually do them? And while that's blunt, she's getting direct, immediate, valuable feedback. And the people who are like, yeah, I'm never going to do the stretches. She's like, cool. I know how to tailor my message to you. No problem. And your treatment plan might just be a little bit longer. So asking people about values and interests is really important because that's, that's what's going to really speak to someone. Yes, I love that. I think that's so important. Um, I actually want to circle back to something that you had said earlier is coming back to this idea of messaging and being able to convey your message in a way that's authentic to you. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we can get caught up in wanting to present ourselves in a way for the audience that may be in a way that's not as authentic to us, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like we show up and start presenting in a way that's not as natural to the way that we communicate. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about how we can present ourselves in a way that is authentic. I know for me personally, like when I have smaller groups, I feel way more energized and feel like I can really connect with people. And I feel like I can be a little bit more of a goofball where I almost feel like with larger groups, I have to be more professional and buttoned up. And sometimes that's, you know, based on the scenario or where I am but I've definitely noticed that I can kind of change based on those environments. And I definitely love the smaller group environments where I really connect with people and I just feel so much more energized. So I'm curious, you know, how do we show up for our audience knowing what their needs are, but then also express ourselves in our most authentic way? Yep. So this is what I work with clients on and what I'll be doing with them in my 10-week program that starts in August, but the best way to explain it is through a story, and I promise I will take pieces out and explain it, but I used to work for a bank, and one of my presentations that I gave was to all of the bankers 
from Oregon and Washington. There were about 400 people there, maybe 300 people there. And my manager wanted me to give her presentation. She didn't want to lead it. She wanted me to lead it. No problem. The theme was NASCAR. I know nothing about NASCAR. I also had no idea how I was going to tie that into my presentation. So I took a look at the audience who was going to be attending. I had branch managers from two different states that I had never met in my life. I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know anything about their styles. But the one thing that I did know about my audience is that they had account goals. They needed to open new accounts. And there was an account that I was, that I was a specialist in. It was a health savings account. I know that's super sexy and interesting to listen to, <laughs> but it was. Sure. It, was all about, it was all about health insurance. Like I can read a health insurance plan like it's nobody's business. So I, ta- I decided to teach them about something that was A, in my wheelhouse. So I picked something that I knew very, very well and didn't have to do any real extra research on because I knew that that was going to matter to my audience. The next thing that I did is I tailored it to them in a way that was easy. Our audiences like things to be easy. When it comes to communicating verbally, we have to make sure our messages are easy to understand. And if we have action steps afterwards, that they're easy to take. If we make them very complicated, people tune out. So I made sure that I had a plan that was easy for them all to activate. Now that required kind of a a burden of education. So I had to go about educating them on health savings accounts. Educating, as we know, is my specialty. I educate myself on lots of different topics based on fear, based on needs. So I did a lot of educating. And then what I did is I made sure that my visuals paired perfectly with what I was talking about. So often I see people put up visuals that are A, full of text, which is of no use to you as a speaker and really no use to your audience, or B, they're not aesthetically appealing, which is a problem. And you might not think that that really matters very much in a slide deck, but it really does. If people don't like your graphics, that's a bit of a turnoff. So I made sure that it was really, a, really attractive graphics that everybody could understand. And then I made sure I had a huge section of Q&A because it was a lot of new information. I realized there were going to be people that were going to fall off on the, along the way in the process. Not too many, but a few. And then the third thing that I did, third, probably sixth or seventh thing that I did, is I printed out a packet with all of the information that I talked about that they could take back to their branches and then teach their employees about as well. So I wasn't just teaching them. I was teaching them how to teach others. So the reason that that worked well for me is I know my learning style. And my learning style is I tell stories and I like to educate people. I'm not very big and heavy on facts and stats, although I can get into those. And I like to be extremely engaging. You talked about something really interesting though. When I work with clients, I ask them, how are you your best self? How are you the most engaging? Are you better one-on-one? Are you better in small groups? Are you better in large groups? Because most people fall into one of those three camps or two of those three camps. And depending on where you fall into that, you want to tailor your style to meet your skills and your strengths. So I know that my skills and strengths are, first of all, in person. I prefer in person. I like one-on-one. I like groups. And I can do large audiences, but I really feel that same connection with one-on-one and small groups. I feel like I can make a difference. I made sure that I used my engaging style. I made sure I told a lot of stories. I kept really high energy. And I made sure I was speaking to my lowest common denominator. So a lowest common denominator in an audience is the person that has the least amount of information on the topic you're speaking on. 
because when you talk to that lowest common denominator, you're ensuring that you are rising the tide for all of the boats. Uh, you know, uh, rising tide floats all boats. If you talk to that lowest common denominator, you're making sure every single person listening to your message is able to understand it and digest it. It's not simple. It's not stupid. It's making sure you're speaking to the person in the room that just doesn't have the same amount of information as everyone else and you're including them. Oh, I love everything you just said. I think there's so many rich nuggets in there. Um, I love that you talked about making it very easy to communicate, especially because people are listening, right? So it's verbal communication. And so when you make it very easy for people to understand and then follow that with a few key action steps that they can take, I think that really helps it cement for people and it makes it bite-sized. And I think going back to when we were talking about fear, there's often this fear of like, am I going to give them enough information? Are they going to get something out of this? And I think sometimes we overcomplicate it and trying to like tell everyone everything we know right in that moment when that's not necessarily what's needed by the audience. Exactly. Yeah. You, it, it's so hard sometimes because we have so much good information we want to put out there and we get into this helping or serving mode, or we feel like if we inundate people with information that will persuade them when really you just want to make it easy for them to understand. And you also talked about something very key, the listening skill. There's some statistics out there and they're pretty congruent with each other, but statistically speaking, after we hear a presentation or a speech or some sort of a message that I think has to be 30 minutes to 60 minutes long, we forget 50% of it within the next 12 hours. And within 24 hours, we've forgotten 75% of it. Wow, so if you those are huge amounts. <laughs> really big numbers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one thing I ask clients is, okay, so in a week's time, what's the one thing you want your audience to remember or take action on? That is your goal. That is your one easy topic to speak to. That's where you really want to hit home because your audience isn't going to remember everything. So what's the one thing you want them to remember? What's the one thing you want them to take action on? That is such a powerful question. Cause I think again, it goes back to what is the goal of your presentation? Why are you presenting to people? And again, I think when you keep that in mind, you're able to really show up in service. And I think it does simplify it for you as a presenter as well, because again, you're not giving away a hundred tips on how to <laughs> be successful running their business, but it's like, here's this one action you can take today. And then I think the audience is more likely to take that action and then remember you and then potentially hire you in the future. Yep. And that's, it also holds true for how you persuade I have yet to meet someone that says, oh, I remember that one statistic. No, you remember, <laughs> you remember the stories. I used to work at Under Armour and I met, he was not the CEO then. He was, uh, uh, he was in the C-suite. It was uh, Patrick Frisk and he had just come on board to Under Armour and we sat in a boardroom with him. It was my whole team and I, it was pretty small and I still to this day remember the stories that he told us. He was part of the Swiss army. And he linked that story with how we get new clients and new accounts and new people to buy our footwear. And I will never forget that story. He, he probably shared some statistics. He probably talked about his credibility a little bit, but I don't remember any of that. I remember his story about being in the Swiss army. Wow. Yes. I think that's so important. It is those stories. Again, going back to that human connection piece is those 
stories are really what connects us and that's what we remember and it evokes that emotional connection. Yeah. Stories can show people that you're just like them. It's one thing I really encourage the people that I work with who identify as leaders, not so much the unsung leaders, but people who are leaders. There's this common misconception that you have to keep your your personal and your work life separate and you shouldn't have emotion when really your team is going to resonate so much if you share personal stories. You know, there is, of course, a, a very good boundary that you should maintain, but Absolutely, you should be sharing stories about your personal life because that's what connects other people to you. I have worked for people and I've worked at companies where they were so void of personal connection and emotion and I just didn't feel like I was a good fit there because I didn't feel like anyone was feeling like me or having the experiences that I had had. Right. And I think it's about treating everyone as a whole person. I think I've always been against the whole turn off your emotions at work or <laughs> there can't be a connection. And I agree there are boundaries between the personal and the business. But at the same time, I think the more that you can put your whole self in and feel comfortable to again authentically express yourself, that's people are going to naturally gravitate towards you because it gives them permission to do the same. Right. Yeah, they, they know that you feel things the way they feel them. You see things the way that they see them. Absolutely. Yes, I love this. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about sort of what to do in presentations. And I'm curious if you have maybe some common mistakes that you see people making when they're trying to convey their message and maybe how people can overcome and avoid making some of those mistakes. Yes, this is a favorite question for people to ask and know the answers to. I We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast today. One of them is not knowing your audience. I still remember when I gave a presentation, I recycled it. I will admit it. I had given it many times. And I gave my presentation to kind of a retirement community outside of my normal travel area. So I didn't know the area. I didn't really know who I was talking to. Couldn't get any information on what the audience wanted. And I just decided to recycle my message. And I got crickets when I asked an open-ended question. It was one of those, raise your hands if. And everyone just looked at me with their glasses on. It was, a, it was kind of like a retirement community. And they all had really big, thick glasses. And there were people in wheelchairs. And I was like, oh oh my gosh, I don't know what my audience needs. They're on Medicare and Medicaid. They don't need this kind of health insurance. Oh no. And I felt my <laughs> face burning and I wanted to sit down as quickly as possible. I, I think I turned it around and was like, well, you have a, a lovely community and it's beautiful outside. Have a great weekend, everyone. You know. <laughs> so um, I have been there. I know that feeling. I'm sure I'm, I'm even feeling like a blush creeping up my neck and my cheeks right now thinking about it. So knowing your audience is so critical. Any information yeah. is better than no information. And remember to ask for the information ahead of time. The other thing that I see people make the mistake of is clarity. If you are not clear, your audience is not clear. If you can't succinctly say the goal or what you want to say in one to two sentences, it's going to be very tough for your audience to understand what you are talking about as well. I often see this. Messages get really muddled. When we were talking about statistics earlier, when people just toss loads of statistics into a presentation, your audience doesn't know which ones are most important. They don't know which ones stand out. They don't know which ones to take action on. 
They don't know if you want them to take action on them. They don't know where to go or what to do with them. The third mistake probably that I see the most often too is engagement. It's a little bit harder with online environments because we can't gauge the engagement as well. But in person, you have to engage your audience. You have seven seconds before you, for, you start speaking to build credibility. People make snap judgments about you in the first seven seconds they see you. And then within the first 15 seconds that you start talking, that's when people decide whether or not they should tune into your message. So if you're one of those people that starts off most of your presentations with, hello, my name is Bob Stark. I am the vice president of blah and I do blah and blah. It is so good to see all of you. That's not very engaging. I hate to call no. that out, but it's not. Right. Yeah. So I think we've people, all been in those presentations. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and it's true as an audience, you're just like, and I'm just going to turn off the dial, like turn the dial down, turn it, tune it out. So a lot of people panic. They're like, but, but, but people need to know my name. They need to know who I am. Yes, they do. It just doesn't need to be the first sentence out of your mouth. You've mm, got to engage your audience. Huge advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. And that one takes a lot of practice because we are programmed. Anytime someone calls on us, you know, from grade school all the way to our full adult working lives, we're programmed to say, my name is Hannah Michelotti and this is what I do and this is what I brought in for show and tell. So it's really hard to switch that up and start with an engaging piece first and then explain who you are. I'm actually writing a workshop right now and I, the first thing out of my mouth is I've done two marathons and over 10 half marathons. It is not, hello, my name is Hannah. So mm-hmm. engagement is pretty critical. Yeah, that's something I've learned to do both for the audience, but also for myself. (laughs) It's a little bit selfish, but I sometimes like to make a little bit of a joke or make something that lightens the mood and allows everyone to laugh because I find that helps myself settle into the room, but it also helps the audience settle into the room and sort of sets a tone so that people aren't sitting there like, "Ugh, is this going to be boring? Like, why am I here? And I think it immediately builds builds that connection of like, okay, this might be a little bit of fun. I'm good, might learn something. And I find that that really helps set the tone before diving into, hi, my name is Charlotte, and I'm going to talk to you about marketing. (laughs) It does set the tone. It puts people at ease and it tells them whether or not they should tune in and listen to you. It's, it's actually a storytelling technique. Um, if you, a lot of storytellers use self-deprecation when they start, but there's that, that kind of like awkward moment. If you used to go to any sort of a storytelling show where they amble up to the microphone, everybody's quiet. They haven't started speaking yet. And a lot of people will grab the mic and be like, well, you guys are a lively crowd. Comedians do it too. Or like, mm-hmm. man, the drinks are great at the bar. You should go tip. It's, <laughs> it's just a way to warm people up and get them to tune in and get them to focus. So a lot of what you just talked about, I think knowing your audience and being really clear in your goal and your message actually kind of helps mitigate a lot of those worst case scenarios that we have fear about. It's like fear of people just walking out or, um, you know, the fear of people not understanding your message. I think so much of being prepared above and beyond just the presentation, what you're going to say, but by knowing your audience and connecting with them right off the bat, it kind of helps some of those fears subside and helps you really take control of the experience versus just it being a presentation and it's scary because there's people staring at you. So I think those tips are fantastic. And while I could talk to you all day about public speaking, 
I know we're going to wrap up here. And before I ask my last question, I would love for you to tell the listeners where they can connect with you online. And I also know you have a, a program coming up starting in August. Yes, I do. Yes. So listeners can connect with me online via my website, which is www.articulatewithhannah.com. They can connect with me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn under Hannah Michelotti. I have a YouTube channel. You can find me either under Hannah Michelotti or Articulate with Hannah. And I'm probably most active on Instagram. I respond to DMs, within the hour typically and it's articulate with hannah that handle there as well and also please feel free to shoot me an email articulate with hannah at gmail.com i try to keep it simple try to keep it the same and yes in august i am launching my program it's called articulate with confidence and it's a program that takes people through a 10-week journey where first we help you discover and hone your one-of-a-kind communication style so that you can feel confident, you can feel comfortable, and you can feel connected when you're sharing your message. Step two is I help you find and sharpen your speaking edge so you know where it shows up, where you use it, and how it's the most effective and you can make it the most effective for you. The third thing that we'll do together is we'll create and activate a professional strategy so that we take your style plus tried and true methods and put them in the workplace and beyond. So whether that's a meeting that you want to run or presentation that you want to give, or maybe if you even want to build a signature talk, I can help you do that. The fourth thing that we'll do is we'll basically combine forces. So we'll cultivate that inner speaker and inner leader, whether that's sung or unsung inside you, so that you can be seen, so that you can be recognized, and that you can be sought out for your advice and by audiences. And then the fifth thing that we'll do is we'll test it out. And you will see that you will be able to move your audiences to action through the message that, messages that you share and have influence, which is what leaders do. Oh, that sounds like such a powerful program. That's so exciting. And uh, I will link to the program and all of your social links in the show notes as well so that people can access that as well. And so speaking of crafting your message, you know, that's something that I help my clients with and I take a very intentional approach to marketing. I think the more intentional we can be, we're going to know, uh, similar to you, exactly what our goals are and how we're going to reach our audience and where they are. And so I'd love to know what being intentional means to you and kind of how that shows up in your life and your business. Ooh, that's such a good question. Okay, how do I show up intentionally and how does that show up in my business? Okay, I've been doing a lot of work around this because I was having a hard time breaking down what the word intentional meant and what the word show up meant because they kind of feel like platitudes, they kind of feel like cliches, but at the same time, how else do you describe the work that you're doing? So for me, what it means to be intentional is, and this might even seem silly, is I have a rule now where I do not look at my phone when I get in bed. And I do not look at my phone when I get out of bed. The only thing I can do is set my alarm for the morning. I cannot look at any disturbing news stories. I can't go on social media. I can't check my email. If I am in bed, no phone. And it's very intentional. There's that word. It's, it's on purpose because I, I'm not as productive 
The other thing that I found myself doing is I've gotten back into writing by hand. That's one thing I recommend for all my clients is when you write things down by hand, you have a better connection to your brain. So I start off every morning just writing. I spend like five or 10 minutes writing about whatever's on my mind. Maybe it's some client work. Maybe it's completely unrelated, or maybe I just need to noodle something out. And I just, I write about it and I have to for myself to get my brain kind of flowing and going. And then the third thing that I do is I make sure that I exercise. Exercise is really, really critical for me to be happy and functional and to do really good work. And if I don't do it, it kind of hangs over my head. It's like I get a little bit angry that I sacrificed my workout for something else because I know that my workout plays such a huge role in my happiness. So yeah, that's how I'm intentional right now. I think another thing is I, I make reading a priority. I like to expand my brain. It's one of the ways that I tell people to seek inspiration. Listen to a podcast, pick up a book, watch a YouTube video, see how people speak and think differently than you do and see what kind of inspiration that gives you. I went on a walk around the block before this podcast actually. And I listened to an NPR clip and Nancy Pelosi was talking about something she was trying to get through to Congress. And uh, then I saw Mount Hood and those two things together, inspiration in my brain. I think that was such an amazing answer. And I think, yes, we are kind of living on purpose. If it be not having our phones in bed or writing and making that connection, I think that's such a powerful way to really set the tone for our days, but also set ourselves as our priorities which then I think does help us show up in our business and we're able and prepared to serve the people that we work with. So that was such a beautiful and wonderful answer. And I thank you so much for all the juicy tips you've given. I think I'm probably going to re-listen to this episode multiple times <laughs> as I am constantly working to improve my public speaking, as you know. So thank you so much for taking the time being on this podcast today. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to talk to you. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode, please subscribe to be the first to know when a new episode is available. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review the podcast so that other conscious business leaders like yourself can join our community of listeners. If you'd like to connect with me further, you'll find me hanging out on Instagram at Charlotte Chipperfield. Come join me there or check out chipperfieldmedia.com for free resources subscribe to my monthly newsletter and learn more about the holistic marketing system.